Welcome to another episode of the Imaginators podcast. Uh, my name is Nat Downey. I'm here with Chris McQueen, and our guest today is Caleb Maskell. Caleb is a worship pastor at the Blue Root Vineyard in Media, Pennsylvania. He is also doing some doctoral work at Princeton on religion in the Americas. So he's a historian. We need those. And he's also, I don't know what the official title is, I'm saying director, president, CEO of uh, Society of Vineyard <laughs> Scholars. I don't know. I'm in charge. Yeah, he's I'm the czar. He's the czar of Society of Vineyard Scholars. Oh, yeah. Um, so Feel we're going to have power. a. <laughs> he has the power. Mm. Um, so we're going to be talking about, well, whatever comes up, but hopefully talking a little bit about scholarship, um, worship, pastoring, life, the church, how that all connects, and how that is a good, holy, and creative work. So mm. maybe. Caleb, um, we can start with you and just say, maybe let's start talking about SVS, Society of Vineyard Scholars. The real, what is it, and why does it exist? Yeah, sure. So, um, in 2007, uh, Kathy, my wife, and I planted a church in New Haven, Connecticut, Elm City Vineyard, uh, with another couple, Matt and Hannah Crosman. And uh, Matt and I were both starting... Uh, the process of doctoral work around that time. And uh, our church was in New Haven, Connecticut, which is a big university town, right? It's where Yale University is. And we found very quickly that our church filled up with people who were, by one definition or another, scholars, right? They were um, studying at the seminary at Yale Divinity School, or they were doing uh, PhDs in one academic discipline or another, or they had done that, right? Yale is, or New Haven is a very um, sort of academic-y town. People have done a lot. You throw a stone, you hit someone with a PhD, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and so our church just filled up with those kind of folks. And we began to realize that as we were doing the regular work of pastoring people, we were having to lean into sort of theological stuff uh, in a way that was not something we'd experienced before and was maybe a little unusual for like a, a vineyard church plant, right? We just had to develop those uh, tools, that kind of those gears for our church to do the job that God was calling us to do in pastoring our people. And over uh, a couple of years, uh, some other folks started to notice that that was what we were doing. And one day I got a call, I think it was initially from Bert Wagoner, who was then the national director of Vineyard USA. And he said, you know, what would you think about the vineyard having a theological society? And I said, well, I think, I think it's a good idea. Um, but I think a couple of things are important. One is that uh, it has to not just be theological. It's got to be inclusive of people who study in all the different uh, arenas of academic and intellectual life, right? So we don't want to just say theologians only. It could be sociologists or scientists or uh, doctors. Um, and the other thing that I wanted it to be was not exclusively for people who were professionals, right? Not people who would consider themselves scholars. And so we decided, okay, let's put together a like a call for papers and, and say, you know, are you interested in 
the life of the mind in a, this kind of particular vocational way? And are you connected to the vineyard? Do you feel like you are either in the vineyard or a friend of the vineyard? And we like hung up a shingle and we said, hey, you know, if you want to meet with like-minded folks, come to Houston. I think it was in February or something uh, of 2009. And we didn't know what to expect, quite honestly. But uh, that meeting turned up about 80 folks from around the vineyard in the U.S. and some uh, internationally uh, who wanted to come and think theologically about their discipline with other folks in the vineyard. And that's how Society of Vineyard Scholars was born. It basically started as like a one-off conference and went from being a one-off conference into an annual meeting. And that annual meeting has a community um, all around it. So that's how SVS began. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, you know, when I think about um, my experience last year, I really wanted to be there this year because my experience was so um, so positive, so encouraging. Um, and, you know, as somebody who's not, um, by, by any kind of real definition, a scholar, um, there's something about the scholarly process and dialogue and being able to hold things in tension and almost co-create um, conversationally uh, around some powerful ideas uh, um, that I just find so inspiring as a as a pastor and as a as a creative person. You know, mm. it, it's um, I can think of conversations that I've had with uh, with friends. Um, you know, that have resulted in in songs that wouldn't have existed without without those dialogues, right? Yeah. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about what I experienced last year in terms of this community of people, super diverse in so many different ways, positionally all over, over all sorts of things. And yet there was a real cohesion and sense of belonging that I saw, even in some tension and some d- disagreement, which I know is part of, of sort of intellectual discourse. It's a, it's a skill set that's cultivated. But I wondered if you could speak to um, uh, what maybe the common center is that allows for those sort of tensions to be held and yet very genuine community to, and, and relationships to flourish and what it might look like kind of um, like as, a, as an archetype or a, as a model for even more localized communities to be able to, um, to, to, to celebrate their sense of belonging to one another even in the space of there being all sorts of different positions around all sorts of different topics. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good question, and a really, it's it's an it's both by turns important and and thorny, right? I uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. I think for me, the 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 center of what it is that makes SVS work uh, is a common love for God, for the vineyard, and for one another in the room. Right. So when things to speak sort of on the negative side, when things start to break down, it's where one of those things begins to be missing. Right. Hmm. Disagreement is a whole different thing if it's imminent, if it's inside. Right. If it's family. One other thing I would um, add to that, and having been in, been to a number of uh, SVS meetings, is that there's this generosity and spaciousness about it. Um, I I go to quite a few academic conferences throughout the year, and this is the only one where, like Caleb said, there's worship, 
there is time for prayer. They even offered spiritual direction one year. Um, there's a high level of scholarship, both people exploring and entering into it, maybe for the first time, and people that uh, are very accomplished. And there's this dialogue or a space for dialogue. Um, again, not necessarily seeing things from the same place or the same context and wanting to hear things from different contexts. And the other thing that I have felt very uh, grateful for is the inclusion of creative expression as a form of scholarship or a gift to mm. uh, that kind of dialogue. Uh, yeah. And that's very rare as well when, when you're talking about, like you say, the life of the mind, that the creativity, create, creative aspect is not always included. And yeah. maybe we could talk a bit about what the academy what the church can learn from the academy and what the academy can kind of learn from the church. And maybe the sad state is that, is that those two things have been separated a bit in mm -hmm. the history of the church instead of really seen as, as giving life to each other. When we look at maturing church movements over time, we see that placed within those movements and emergent from within those movements aren't just folks who do uh, church planting and worship leading, which is kind of the nuts and bolts of what we might call, you know, the vineyard's renewal stage. But as the vineyard moves from being a renewal movement to a sort of more fully orbed expression of, uh, you know, the church of Jesus, we'll just see within that, I think, a need to prioritize other forms of leadership. And of course, that stuff's happening naturally already. It's not like SVS invented that. But SVS is creating a space for some of those things to be expressed in community, right? And so when we talk about uh, arts, for example, Matt, like um, these kind of creative spaces for expression in terms of visual art, I think of last year we had, you know, dialogue between visual artists and theologians who were reflecting on visual pieces that they saw. This last year in Kentucky, we had a number of different uh, dance performances and poetry and things like that. Um, and for my experience, the, the those are some of the most profound sessions um, and the most... I. Uh, fertile, like provocative in, in the sense that they stir things within me because the, those media are reaching for language, right? They're trying to make articulate things that are maybe not yet quite so articulate. And in my view, good ecclesial theology, which is just a fancy way of saying theological work that's done in and for the church, right? That's always trying to make articulate things that are already happening within the community, right? Uh. So good theology and, you know, good ecclesial reflection of any sort at the intellectual level is almost never strictly innovative, right? It's almost never coming up with something brand new that doesn't already, doesn't reflect something that the Spirit is already doing in the community. So, in my view, the contribution that people who are doing the kind of work that we uh, zero in on at SVS can make is in the realm of articulation. Like, what do mm. we see the Spirit 
already giving birth to, and how can those who are gifted in this particular way give voice to that stuff, right? It's it's funny. I was having a conversation, uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago with somebody, and um, we, were, we were talking about uh, just various, you know, kind of basically where the tracks were theologically, you know, on the tracks, off the tracks, orthodoxy, that kind of thing. Mm. And, uh, and sort of said something similar to the effect that to, to be innovative theologically, there's a word for that, right? Um, you know, there's the, typically that's going to lead you down a pathway to perhaps to heresy if you're coming up with something that's absolutely brand new theologically. Mm. Um, but in articulation, in language, in metaphor, in the ways that we communicate and express these things, that, that's uh, the, sort of a sky-wide-open opportunity to find and cultivate new expressions of of ancient things. I don't know if you, I mean, if you want to kind of tease that out a bit further from your perspective. Yeah, totally. I mean, so, so when I think about what theological reflection, well, when we say like, I don't know, this is a little fanciful, but here's how I, I, I imagine it, right? When you read John 1, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, or right? Uh, or in reverse, you know the passage. Um, I think of that part where it talks about the sound of God's voice as being like the sound of many waters, right? Where the word of God is so super abundant that it's you can't to say that you're going to do theology and stick strictly to that is to pretty much guarantee that you're going to fail, right? Thomas Aquinas sort of, I mean, to 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 kind of uh, not do justice to a complex thought that he had. Thomas Aquinas says one of the prerequisites of theology is the incomprehensibility of God, right? Like you can <laughs> never say everything that you need to say. You can't circumscribe God in your theology. And the point of all that is is to say that when we're doing theology or any kind of theological expression in any discipline, whether it's a worship song or a sermon or an academic treatise or a dance or a poem, um, work that we are doing uh, is always already going to be two things. One, unable to circumscribe God, and two, embedded in a culture, right? So, I think really the work of theology is not so much to try to more adequately circumscribe God. We know that that's impossible, right? The Mm. work of theology is to say the thing that needs to be said now. And why does that thing need to be said now? Well, that thing needs to be said now because of the way that the Spirit is moving in the midst of the particular cultural contexts that we currently live, right? So, as our, it's not that theology is reactive to cultural change. It's that the Spirit of God is constantly at work in the world, saying different things at different times, right? And so, that work of articulation is paying attention to the particular things that the Spirit is saying and uh, making those things clear. So, I'm not sure that I would say that, like, innovation always leads to heresy. I tend to want to sort of protect people, although I know, of course, Chris, I know what you mean, and I, and I wouldn't like... No, this is great. Go yeah, for it. This I is mean, good. I wouldn't like... I, 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 can, I know 
where that comes from. Originality is not a virtue in theology, right? But at another level, cultural situations are always at some level original. History doesn't repeat itself, it just rhymes, right? So when we look back, we can never say, oh, we've been there and we've done that. We can say, oh, this has an echo of something from before, but still new articulation is really important, right? And so for us to um, do, to speak faithful theological speech, whatever our context, again, sermons, worship songs, this is stuff that pastors and leaders do all the time. This isn't reserved for academics. For us to do that well is to be paying attention both to the sound of many waters and the particular work of the Spirit in our communities and the cultural setting in which we find ourselves, right? So that requires a lot of humility, a lot of patience, oftentimes some courage, I think. Um, and yeah, to me, that's the work that needs to be done. Hmm. I just want to, I just want to just, uh, Matt's going to jump in in just a second, but I can't, I just can't let go, um, that we just heard from a historian. I'm going to, I'm just going to quote you. And I I don't know if it was a, if this is a, a Caleb Maskell quote or if it's, if you pulled from somewhere, but from a historian, we hear history doesn't repeat itself. It just rhymes. And I just, that is something that I think I'm going to walk away with thinking about. There's something really profound about that. And it's, and it, it takes us away from this sort of prescription of the future. When we look at how things have played out in the past, we can learn from it. But I just, that popped right out. I heard the rest of what you said, but that one, that was like a shining yeah, no, moment. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's it's not, it, I didn't, I'm not the first person to talk about history's rhyming, but I think it's very important because, you know, there are certain kinds of things that I think are like perennial desires in the church, right? Like people will say, oh, wouldn't it be great if there was like another great awakening, right? Or wouldn't it be great if there was a a new reformation, like those kinds of things. And, And yeah, like it would be great to see some of those wonderful, profound moves of the spirit happen again. But the danger, right there, I mean, there are two dangers. One is to say, oh, well, that was then, this is now, the past is a foreign country. And so like, you know, what happened uh, in 1517 with Martin Luther, or what happened in 17, you know, 30s with Whitfield and the whole transatlantic evangelical thing. You know, that that kind of thing will never, ever happen again. Now, that's not quite true, because if God was behind that, then God will be behind whatever's next. There's some continuity there, right? But then also, on the other hand, the last thing that we need is like formulas and blueprints, right? I think that, you know, if someone says to you, well, all you need for a revival is to do like these three or four things, and be really earnest about it, you should be very suspicious, right? That's just a recipe for feeling bad when it doesn't happen. Because the truth is that, and, 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 and a lot of those folks get into this trap of nostalgia. Well, if only we could lean back to the way that it used to be, then we would see revival. But now we have all this cultural decline. And I just think that's why rhyming is important. We want to give credence to the fact that there are some things that we can learn from history, learn from the past, but also not get obsessed with formulas and blueprints because they'll let us down. God won't let us down, 
but like our attempts to manipulate him through our very special actions, those will let us down. <laughs> uh, for sure. Uh, I, I like the connection here um, that you're making between these formulas. And I think in the life, in our lives, or even in the life of any community, be it a faith community or a city, that we, we tend to look at what worked and then try to do that again. Like we mm-hmm. want to avoid failure, which is normal, mm-hmm. um, but we want to kind of repeat something. So you have things in worship being repeated that, well, that worked last time, let's do it again, or uh, even in the life of a church. Well, I think even what I'm trying to say here rather badly is that this podcast is called The Imaginators because we're really trying to open up that space where creativity touches all of life and the role that imagination plays in that. And I think even in theology or history or looking at the trajectory of our lives, to not be looking for formulas or, or things that we want to happen, again, this longing for something to be repeated, but mm-hmm. really to, to look creatively creatively look forward and say what might the spirit be breathing on life on now Mm -hmm. that looks similar that rhymes that has an echo of it but is actually something new and right for this time and i love that what you said you got so many like wonderful quotes uh theology is something that needs to be said now we're never really saying something new something that needs to be said now yeah. And some of the creative expressions, um, especially this past year at the conference, some of the creative expressions, you actually don't have the response to those creative expressions is silence. When when a paper is fin- an academic paper is articulates something, usually the crowd is eager, then the people want to ask questions, the hands go up. When you present a creative work, everyone sits in silence because they have no words. Because they were, it's something that they're just encountering in another part of their being, mm. where that is not being articulated. They're just living in it right now. So there's yeah. this connection between silence and something being birthed and opened up, but still a need for articulation for the moment. So I don't know. It's a kind of we need all of it in some well, way. So I think I mean, I'll give you another metaphor. I, I think of. Uh, the theological resources of the church, by which I mean everything from doctrine to story and all points in between, right? The history of who the people of God are and have been, the different doctrines and so on. I think of them as like stops on an organ, like a pipe organ. Um, Mm. And the thing about that is that there are particular doctrines, particular narratives, particular things that need to be emphasized at a particular time, right? So, if you think about, oh, I don't know, Athanasius on the Incarnation, right? Athanasius had the Incarnation stop, like, fully blasting, right? Because that was something that needed to be said in his moment. Or Martin Luther, uh, justification by grace through faith. Or, you know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. speaking about uh, the equality of all people before God. And, you know, those are moments where those organ stops need to be fully engaged in order for uh, their culture to uh, properly hear them. Um, 
There may be a moment, I mean, I, the doctrine of the Trinity, and again, I'm a historian, not a theologian. I don't intend to, to uh, I don't intend to minimize the significance of anything theological here. But I, you know, I've heard pastors say sometimes that the, the significance of the kind of detail of the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't feel relevant to them in their pastoral ministry sometimes, right? Which you can totally understand, right? There's some pretty complex technical stuff in some of the Trinitarian formulations. The, re- the question then at that point is, well, if it doesn't feel relevant, do you want to throw it out? And of course, the answer is no, you don't want to throw it out. You want to maintain the deposit of that thing that has been given to you because a time will come when you need that. Right. So when we're like when we minimize the sound of a particular organ stop because the difference between the imminent and the economic trinity doesn't feel particularly important uh, to the (laughs) proclamation of the gospel in our particular moment, we don't tear that thing out and throw it away and say, forget it. It's not relevant anymore. Right. I think what we do is we say, let's preserve that. Let's thank God for it. And let's try to recognize what it is that God would want us to continue to remember in our moment and then down the road. And so, there's kind of guarantees that you're always going to have people who care more about things that people think are presently irrelevant, right, uh, than, than others. And, and that brings us to um, really, I think, asking the question of, whether cultural relevancy as a value might not have a serious downside. You know, in the vineyard, we talk a lot about, you know, culturally relevant mission. And of course, we know what the positive side of that is. You don't want to put obstacles in the way of people coming to God, right? So I don't want to erect a straw man here. Uh, We want to be culturally relevant in that way. But the barometer for whether something is or the litmus test for whether something is or is not worth maintaining should not simply be cultural relevance. We don't tear out and throw away parts of the organ. We keep them Mm. because we know that down the road uh, we may well need exactly what feels arcane at the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I would, if I might slightly disagree with the hypothetical pastor there, I think Trinity is so key, is a word for now, actually, theologically speaking, because it Mm -hmm. speaks to community, diversity, multiplicity, and uh, a unity all coming together, and relational, Mm -hmm. the relational importance of everything that we do. And, And to me, that's just coming right to the forefront again, at least for me as a word for now, for something that the church can actually help the world navigate through as we are just seeing all these growing divisions between groups that look at things uh, from different points of view and then get very solidified in their viewpoints, so to speak. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I mean, you know, I love that. And I think that that's an important thing for you to keep saying. And I don't think we would ever want to (laughs) ditch Trinitarian theology, although, of course, that is precisely something that has happened in a variety of different moments in the life of the church, right? I mean, this is not, that's, it sounds ridiculous, except it happens often. Um, 
I, you know, I think what I was referring to specifically is this stuff that people maybe learned or didn't learn in seminary about the proper relation of the father to the son. And is it homo eusion and the, all this kind of stuff that feels far away, but actually um, is not that far away. As you said, it's actually a whole lot closer than we think, right? Um I think it could be the work of a theologian. That's part of the work of theologians is to embody the institutional memory of the church as well, right? We don't uh, want to outsource that. Um, and that, again, that's, that's uh, often work that doesn't feel particularly valuable. Like if you've got a triage crisis in your church, right? It's a little hard to uh, remember, perhaps, that it's important to have people maintaining these other sort of elements of the memory of the work and witness of God and the people of God over time. But it really is, right? And so, some of this is just the growing up that I think we are doing, and I hope growing out of any sense of um, any sense of pragmatism that would alienate us from historic Christian tradition, right? Mm -hmm. We're not just trying to instrumentalize our churches so that we can get people to do things, right? What we're actually trying to do is embody a fully orbed expression of the people of God. I keep having this thing kind of running through my head right now. It's another metaphor, but you know, it's, it's the Imaginators podcast, so I guess it's I guess it's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, um, and I, I and I'm not a I'm not a great uh, sketch like drawer, you know. Um, but when I sometimes when I think about the impression that people have around things like theology or orthodoxy or these different um, different tenets and and whatever. Um, that sometimes we think about these things as like hard lines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you ask a master, um, somebody who's a master at drawing, to draw an eye, what they're going to do very rarely is use line. They're going to shade. They're going to have texture and tone, and there are going to be some elements of that that there are going to be very you know strong kind of hard. There will be some hard lines to create a you know depth, but it's, I've often thought about that, how um, we kind of can tend to um, want definition around everything, um, and, but that creates art without any sense of depth, right? And the idea of, of using shade and texture, in, and that's sort of what I see even with all these different disciplines that, are, that I experience as re- represented at... Um, um, at SVS, but just in in general, like I think that's one of the gifts of the age. There are lots of things in this age that are concerning to me, but the fact that there are so many different perspectives and ways of communicating, um, it seems to me that you know if you're looking for hard lines, it seems very confusing. But if you're looking for texture and tone and depth in an you know in, in this metaphorical image, um, that that feels like a like a wealth of this time. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you want texture, tone, and depth, you look no further than the Bible, right? <laughs> I mean, I I I think that uh, again to your point, Chris. Like when we think about 
a lot of folks, when they think theology, you're thinking these kind of precise formulations of facts about God, right? Which I, I think is, is just not the right way to think about theology. It's very hard to think biblically about God that way, right? I mean, the Bible has lots of things to say about who God is and lots of stuff that we should take to the bank, right? But so often, the stuff that the Bible wants us to take to the bank about God operates with paradox as much as it does um, with a kind of... um, well, I, I don't know. I, I was going to say with clarity, but I mean, paradoxes can be immensely clear. The lion and the lamb, right? I mean, that's incredibly clear. You have a lion and you have a lamb, and in Jesus, you have both, right? So, I think that the way that we read scripture requires us to become good at existing in the very tension that God wraps around himself is the sound of many waters trying to speak faithfully about who God is, right? I think you could take what I'm about to say too far, but my my instinct about theological imagination is that it's not so much speaking rightly about God as it is speaking rightly about the experience of having been spoken to by God, mm. right? And and, and I don't mean to make that individualistic at all, quite the opposite. I want to make that, you know, uh, the polyvocality of Scripture speaking directly to us in ways that are normative and have profound implications for our lives, things that we simply can't shake off, right? I want us to have the highest view of Scripture. And then I also think that we have to have an understanding of uh, tradition, which is to say how the church has read the scripture over time, right? And then what those readings have become theologically, and here we get back to the image of the organ stops, right? What are the things that have been said at particular moments in time that have been relevant and why? And then I think we have to take seriously the cultural experiences that we are having right now. Uh, and there's and there's a place where I think a little bit of uh, interpretive chastity becomes important as well because it's, well, it's just (laughs) very, very easy to have your agenda handed to you by your culture, right? I think that um, just the degree of fear and hysteria that is present in uh, popular media at this point uh, on the left and on the right Mm -hmm. could very easily drown out the still small voice of God with respect to what the faithfulness of the church looks like in our moment, right? And so, as we are learning to think theologically, to cultivate a theological imagination, I think that we need to get really good as doing what Matt was saying earlier, at getting quiet and and being willing to listen uh, before we start talking. Right, I want us to have no hot takes. There's no point in having a hot take if we're doing the thing that we say we're doing, which is essentially standing in the tension between uh, eternity and the present moment. <laughs> right? There's not a hot take. Uh, sometimes there's urgency, but uh, you know, no media outlet is allowed to require us to say anything at all. And I just think it's, it's just, that's just a perpendicular to the way that most 
cultural engagement works today, right? Uh, I mean, in the United States, right? President Trump says something and now everybody has to respond and all of our Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds and blah, blah, blah are just obsessed with saying the right thing at the right moment. I'm not so sure that that's the same thing as prophecy. I think we want to become a prophetic people where saying the right thing at the right moment has a lot more to do with you know, the word of the Lord than it does with amplifying noise. <laughs> does, does that make sense? Yeah, if I could add another metaphor to the mix, why not? Um, when I'm reading the Bible, I very often think that I'm getting multiple snapshots of God and God's interaction with the world and in history. And that uh, sometimes they'll look like they're in tension with each other. Like I'm reading through Exodus right now and uh, the story of, you know, God supposedly hardening the heart of Pharaoh, which is so troubling. Uh, but then there's these different words and themes, which I won't get onto. Maybe uh, I'll write about it. But, um, <laughs> but seeing that snapshot and saying, okay, how does that fit in with the snapshot that I get of Jesus Sermon on the Mount. Like, these two snapshots are together. And I almost think of it like a Picasso painting, right? Where I'm seeing multiple things at the same time that don't seem to go together or seem to fit on the same plane. And then Mm -hmm. realizing what I'm actually seeing is parts, sections of a 3D picture. And when you see them, uh, like it's like seeing north and south at the same time. It it doesn't. It, your eyes can't quite handle it, right? Because you're looking mm. at two directions at the same time. Um, so it's a bit disorienting. But realizing that if I just add, keep adding more snapshots and read more stories about Jesus and have more experiences with the community of God and with uh, God in prayer and and uh, contemplation, then more and more snapshots get added to this picture, and the picture gets fuller and more complete of who yeah. God is in the world. And so I, I that find that very helpful in not taking one snapshot and reacting to it, mm-hmm. or, base, or basing a theology or an opinion or an action even on one particular snapshot of whether it's culture or something I've read in the Bible or something someone has said. Uh, and that's a work in progress because we are so trained to be reactive in our culture, if you have said. Oh, and totally. Yeah, no, I, I think that's dead right. Uh, and it's very hard, right? I mean, isn't that challenging? Be- not only is it hard because it's just intellectually hard to do, but it's also hard because that's not the way our media culture works, right? That's not how you sell books, for example. You know, um, I think about, you know, let's see, what... So I really, over the years, have profited from reading René Girard, right? I like René Girard. Uh, We ran a small group on Girardian Bible interpretation in 2003. So this is a person that I've sat with for quite some time. But the more you sit with Girard, the more you recognize that, okay, so this is a theory. And there are things that are useful about what he has to say and things that are not that useful or tensions that he doesn't resolve or reconcile well, right? Or maybe he reconciles them too quickly, right? Mm. And you end up with stuff that you don't want. And and so when I see kind of popularizations of uh, work based on his or anybody else's 
theory, which is only partial, I think, gosh, people are probably going to start to build their lives around some, you know, version of this stuff, which is, is just, it's just really incomplete. Right. And so I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to like take a whack at anything in particular. Like I said, you know, Girard just is the first one that comes to mind, but any of these kind of sort of hot take theological frameworks, um, can just, I think, land us up constantly getting, being like the person in James who's like double-minded and blown around by winds of opinion, right? That's sort of what I think about. We have to get really good at not getting blown around by winds of opinion, which requires mm. that we become deeply rooted in scripture, in tradition, in attention to the cultural experience of our communities, in good thinking, in clear thinking, and in capacity for dialogue, Right, we actually have to develop capacity for dialogue. Um, was it was it Chesterton who said like the benefit of an open mind is that it ultimately closes on something? Right, you don't just want to keep your mind open all the time. And so I, I don't think that dialogue has to be perpetually open ended. That's not a code word for never make decisions. Mm-hmm. But but I do think that in order to do. Uh, in order to cultivate good theological imagination, we just have to get much better at listening, you know, mm. and that's just, all that stuff is, that's real work, right? <laughs> you start to see why, you know, uh, denominations create seminaries. You start to see why people devote their entire lives to writing extensive theological uh, books, because this stuff, doesn't happen overnight. It's not going to be a hot take or a five sermon series, you know. Um, I think it's to your to point though, right? We find something that we can kind of sink our teeth in that resonates with us, and we can kind of reform around those things, and suddenly they almost become part of the canon of our of our framework or whatever. And it kind of leads me to to this thought or question or whatever. But you know, um, and and some of the things you've talked about with regards to culture. And how culture shapes us, and you know, um, I'm probably going to butcher this, but there's the joke or the story about you know, uh, a couple of fish are swimming upstream, and an older fish, you know, stream, c- coming downstream, and they pass each other, and he says, "Hey, boys, how, how's the water?" And right. they and they go, "What's water?" Yeah, um, you know, and I just wonder how th- this. The stuff, some of the things we've talked about, both both theological reflection, good question asking, um, and also com- the sort of dynamics of, of community. Um, you know, is there something here that helps us to be able to distinguish what the water is that's around us, the environment that feels invisible, and and because uh, I think that's part of that's part of the the, the condition of the age, right? Is that um, there's there's so many responses and triggers around us that we don't even really, I mean, have a capacity to, it takes a really long time to figure out what that, what's in the air, if you know what I mean. I think it's possible to develop a, an intuitive understanding of some of that stuff, um, to pay attention to the different ways that, um, that culture's forming. I mean, so, well, let me answer. Let me answer this way, right? I think that you know Jesus 
everything that we do in Christian life is imitation, right? And it's all sort of got its source at the imitation of Jesus. And Jesus calls people uh, to follow him, right? And then to do the things that he does. And so as we are becoming disciples, we are hopefully getting better and better at doing the kinds of things that Jesus does. And, you know, as I sort of think about the things that Jesus does, it strikes me that they fit into four basic categories, um, or there are four that stand out uh, to me. Some of this comes out of my reading of a guy called Gregory of Nazianzus, who was a really interesting combination of a theologian and a pastoral thinker. But, um, you know, one of those things is we have to pay attention to our moral and spiritual formation, right? If you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus is constantly doing things like withdrawing, right? (laughs) Jesus is constantly putting himself in situations where what is at stake and what is exposed is the condition of his soul, and what he's doing, he says, is spending time with his father, right? I mean, Jesus's whole ministry is sort of predicated, predicated on a negation, which is, I don't do what I want. I do what the father wants, right? <laughs> so, Jesus's life is a life of submission, a life of imitation in its own way. So, I think, number one, for us, this formational piece is learning how to not be obsessed with the stuff that we want, but obsessed with the stuff that God wants, right? And then another thing would be paying attention to our imagination. That's kind of like the cultural version of that personal formation, right? What are the structures that form our imagination, right? And if you look at the life of Jesus, he's constantly questioning the structures and the priorities of his age, right? Personal and communal. He says things like, don't prefer your family to me. Like, you know, leave your ox in the field, this kind of thing. Then just come follow me. But also, I mean, Jesus is endless critique of empire, right? Jesus never stops being critical of empire, right? So, this should put the fear of God literally into people who take themselves to be on the right and people who take themselves to be on the left because Mm -hmm. Jesus is in the pocket of nobody, right? So, anytime we find our instincts to be in harmony with the instincts of loud media streams, we should significantly question what it is that we're about, right? Anytime that we feel like, wow, you know, Mm -hmm. those guys, you know, voting in that particular way or those guys grandstanding on that particular issue are really right. Man, I mean, that to me is like an alarm bell. And that's a great way to pay attention to what are the cultural structures that are forming you, right? Then the other thing on that would be, well, what do you fiddle with when you're bored, right? Like, what's the effect that your phone is having on your life, right? Um, Thinking at the kind of meta level about the way that the things that get mediated to us ultimately form us in our own habits, right? Uh, I really like the work of a guy called Jacques Ellul on this stuff. He has a book called Presence in the Modern World that I find extremely helpful just for calling into question, what does it mean to actually be aware of the structures around us? Um, you know, and the way that we end up like 
becoming means to the ends of things like technology companies, right? Everyone's felt that uh, invisible vibration in your leg, right? The phantom phone call in your pocket. And it's like, wow, it turns out that I'm pretty much uh, Pavlovian around my cell phone, right? <laughs> and that's, I mean, salivating that's a, dogs. Yeah. That's a serious structure worth considering. How is that affecting your discipleship, right? And then I think a third thing that Jesus is really about is theological deliberation. I mean, Jesus demonstrates theological conviction, these kind of biblical, traditional, reasonable, all these different things that he's paying attention to, right? Well, doesn't it make sense? You should pull, uh, you know, an animal that falls into a pit out on the Sabbath. That's a reason argument. That's not Bible or tradition. He's saying it just makes sense, right? But he calls people out using scripture. He calls people out on these questions of tradition. Jesus is very, very, this is almost ridiculous to say, but he's very theologically sophisticated (laughs) Um, in a way that I think is so folksy that we Mm. sometimes don't recognize that as theological sophistication. And then finally, you know, Jesus leans into wisdom. Jesus, Jesus gives us the most incredible model of not just what to say, but when to say it and how to say it. Right, And I think that in all of these things, when our sets of cultural assumptions come into conflict with the way that Jesus does any one of those four things, right? whether it's his own personal formation, whether it's his critique of the structures around him, whether it's his mode of theological deliberation, or his wisdom about how to deliver the fruit of that theological deliberation, then I think, you know, that those are moments to ask questions of ourselves. Are we actually being disciples or are we just doing religion? Um, So, I don't know, that's a bit of a long answer to a short question, but that's, those are the ways that I try to do some diagnosis. I don't have a follow-up to that. That was just like, a lecture delivered and received. Uh, no, I, <laughs> I actually appreciate. I'm. I like history is so unnatural for me to enter into. That's very necessary. So I appreciate uh, when historians do the work of reminding us to pay attention, and I think that's what Caleb has asked us to do very well uh, in the last little while here is just inviting us to pay attention to some of the things that uh, we might not see because we're so immersed in whatever we're involved in right now, that it just seems, well, this is natural. And instead of taking maybe a step back and saying, actually, that's quite unnatural, it is counter to the nature of us being made in the image of God and Mm -hmm. being attentive to those things. So thanks for doing that. It's been great. (laughs) Historians bring in the heat. That's it. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, I got to say, like, I, it, yeah, I think about, a, like, yeah, it's a historical mode. But to me, like, the main thing, the single number one question is, who is demanding an answer from me? Mm. Right? That's where Jesus is the most powerful, I think, is when people come up to him with a question and they're demanding an answer to that question. Most of the time, Jesus doesn't answer the question. Most of the time, he responds back with a different question, right? If we could get really, really good at doing that, I think that that would serve us well. Not to be evasive, 
but to change the framework within which people are pursuing questions about what God is like, right? I mean, it seems to me more than, uh, it's always more than ever, but in our particular moment, I think that that's something of incredible significance, incredible Mm -hmm. importance, is to, you know, lean into the kingdom of God and discern what are the kinds of questions that Scripture asks that the Holy Spirit is leading us towards, and just to 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 be resolute in pushing towards that stuff, no matter what it costs. And I do expect that doing that will actually make people mad at times too, because folks genuinely want answers to the questions that they have. It just may be that those aren't the questions that we are to answer. Mm. You know, mm. it's kind of an awful thing to to be a person in ministry uh, who is presented with a question that someone genuinely wants an answer to and to have to say, yeah, I don't think that that's a question that, you know, God has given me the answer to and just leave it at that. It's very tempting to fill in the gaps that God leaves, but I'm not sure that we're to do that. In fact, I'm sure we're not to. <laughs> no, that's really good. And I, I just... Um, uh Again, I really appreciate those four kind of, I don't know what you'd call them, and again, you don't want to sort of immediately systematize things, but um, when I think about how creative output, um, the work of creation, whether it's new songs, whether it's movies, whether it's stories, poetry, whatever, mm-hmm. um, when they move in sort of the rhythms that you described, whether formational rhythms or you know, critiquing power, um, or thinking deeply and well um, and creatively about theological truth and wisdom. I mean, that kind of that kind of creates a pretty healthy framework from within, or uh, what to create within and to create towards, like as as kind of modes of of, of articulation. And and uh, so I think there's even a gift in that in this conversation, just to sort of take away and. Um, you know, because we've even had podcasts or episodes around, um, you know, issues of, of, of justice and missionality and, and creativity. But I, I think that these are, are some really interesting um, elements of a frame that, that yeah. uh, you know. Well, um, and that, that framework, I should say, that comes to me from a Canadian guy. Um, I think he's a pastor in Vancouver, uh, Brian Williams. I, I, mm. I don't know what kind of pastor he is, but he wrote a book that I found quite useful called The Potter's Rib, Mentoring for Pastoral Formation. And uh, the first chapter of it, he uh, talks about Gregory of Nazianzus, who's someone I've been interested in for a long time, and pulls out of some of Gregory's stuff these four characteristics that I, I, I think are very, very helpful for thinking mm. about the way that creativity works, right? Because like the way that we establish an environment, whether that's in like a conference, like a literal environment or in a song, like a sonic artistic environment, right? Or even in a dialogue, like the ways that we engage with one another, I think are incredibly important, right? The means by which we attend to one another's humanity before God, that's as theological as anything else, right? So to me, what I'm interested in is like, how do we lead one another well, which is to say spiritually, 
Uh, and I think that those are some characteristics that can really help us get down the road. The word that I've been thinking about lately, and I jotted it down here, was movement. This idea of, um, even in history, this idea of movement. Things are always moving and emerging and waning and uh, enlarging and maybe being made smaller as well. And how that we really want to be aware of in our theology, in our and the way we think and move and create, we want to be aware of the movement of the Spirit and how we can really cooperate with that instead of uh, being an obstacle to that or oblivious to that in some way. So being attentive to movement. That's just something yeah. I was thinking about as we were talking about. And the conversation and dialogue moved many places, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the word wide-ranging will, will, will be part of the description of this particular conversation, <laughs> which is great. Cool. Well, I mean, it's funny. I do think that we think we're very product-oriented in how we understand almost everything, including leadership, right? We, but, but God seems to me, like when I think about the... When I think about the things that have been produced that have been the most useful to the church, like a book or a letter or something like that, it just makes me wonder, well, what are the environments that have made that possible, right? Because really, really, most of us, we're not in like production. Most of us are in environment if we if we produce anything at all, we produce environments, right? Mm-hmm. It's very rarely about the song. And even if you do write the song, the song is three minutes. The song is five minutes. You know, it's two verses and a bridge and a chorus, right? And maybe an antiphon if you're lucky. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but the thing that enabled the song to get born, I mean, that's a life. Right, so it's it strikes me that we would do really well to become aware of the fact that environment uh, is going to continually drive output. The mm. stuff that we facilitate, you know, the environments that we create, is going to have a huge effect on our quote unquote products. I like that because I I do feel a certain pressure to produce things. I know, Chris, you know, you probably feel a certain internal pressure to produce songs and music and projects. And I feel an internal pressure and external to produce, you know, articles and books and talks and this and that. And I, I love your idea, Caleb, of environment. That's something I can create every single day. Uh, mm-hmm. Not only in my home or my faith community, but in the world in which I walk every day. And to, to come home at the end of a day and say, what environment have I created today in the world in yeah. which I have lived and walked? And is that something that reflected uh, the nature of Jesus? And if so, then I, th- then I say, work well done. Well, a good job done today, instead of how many pages did I write, you know? Uh, but yeah. what environment did I did I create in the world in which I interacted with today? Yeah, you know, my friend Jay Pathak is a pastor in Denver, and he says, you know, that some people are like thermostats and some people are like thermometers, right? If you are in an environment uh, with a person who's like a thermometer, they can tell you 
exactly how much anxiety or exactly how much pain or exactly how much joy is in the room or in this, the system of relationships that you're interacting with at that moment. Uh, but if a person's like a thermostat, they can actually change. They can disrupt the level of anxiety or they can increase the degree of joy. And I don't think it's a formula, but I do think that as we understand ourselves as environmental people, again, we look to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the model of the person who changed the environment in a place. (laughs) Jesus was the ultimate thermostat in that way, right? And I think often when we talk about culture and interacting theologically with culture, we approach it as uh, thermometers. We approach it as people who are like, man, well, I really need to get out there and like take the temperature of culture so that I can appropriately react or, you know, respond if you're (laughs) lucky. But what if we thought of ourselves as thermostats? We said, wow, there's an awful lot going on out there. You know, what would the Lord speak into this environment? What would it look like to shift some things here? Uh, You know, I reckon we would do stuff differently. (laughs) Amen. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, As in, let it be or make it so. Um, (laughs) Make it so. That's right. And now we went to Star Trek. No. Yeah, Star (laughs) Trek. Nope, that's Star Trek. Yeah, okay, good. Whew. Dean would be so (laughs) embarrassed if I got that wrong. Um, no, this has been really good. Thanks, Caleb, for uh, joining us and talking about all things SVS and beyond and the- theological thinking and formation and how that actually touches much more than just, let's say, the mind of those who think theologically. It really mm-hmm. uh, speaks to how we interact with each other and with our world and our society. So thanks a lot. Thanks for listening, everyone. Really, uh, and, and thank you for joining us, Caleb. That was a, f- a really interesting, fantastic conversation. Appreciate your mind as ever. Um, yeah. Yeah, lots of rich things for us to consider in oh, the yeah. days to come. Happy to be with you guys. All right. So this is Matt in Montreal signing off. And Chris coming to you from Ontario. Caleb. Oh, oh I, I'm just outside Philadelphia in the beautiful little town of Media, Pennsylvania, where it all happens. <laughs> <laughs> all of it. Everything is happening right there Everything. at this moment. Oh my Everything. Goodness. There. All the there time. There you go. I've been there. <laughs> it is all happening right there. It's happening right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks Great. for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Imaginators.